Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit uctv.tv slash stem cell. One of the questions that I did ask myself before this meeting is, why are you having this meeting? Uh, and what, why, why isn't it just a technical meeting about the nature of organoids and what they can and can't do? And uh, it's almost certainly the case that there is a bit of wisdom here, a bit of practical wisdom of the kind that motivated the Asilomar meeting uh, many years ago. And that meeting, of course, was assembled because it became possible to use interventions to make modifications in DNA. And the scientists were (coughs) mindful of the possibility that there might well be uh, ethical issues that should arise before uh, they went ahead and did something that aroused the ire of people in the public. And I think that a similar motivation is going on here. I mean, we, these are very new, very powerful techniques. We think sometimes that if we just do more of the same and more of the same, then by gosh, you know, we'll have the whole brain and, and it'll be sitting there in a nice bowl just doing everything. But maybe that won't be true. Uh, We don't really know, actually, where this is all going. It's very, very difficult to predict the future in science, um, as in baseball. And uh, so, nevertheless, it's probably very wise from, from a very practical and meaningful point of view to consider the questions in advance. Now, Christoph very... Uh, knowledgeably led us into the story about consciousness. And, and there I think the, the rationale is quite straightforward. If these are just a bunch of cells, like a bunch of kidney cells or intestinal cells, then nobody's going to worry very much. But if it turns out, and Carl Zimmer obviously raised this worry in his New York Times piece, if it turns out that they are sentient or if they are conscious if it turns out that they really constitute a brain of some kind, uh, then people will worry without a shadow of a doubt. As scientists, we may think that the worries are actually needless, but on the other hand, we, it's, it's important that we go through uh, what the issues might be and whether or not we've thought the issue through uh, to the very bottom. Now, I want to say, first of all, a little bit about uh, consciousness, because that's sort of something that's within my bailiwick as well. And and Christoph and I have talked about consciousness for many, many years. Um, And I like the distinction that he draws between the structures that enable consciousness and the structures that carry content. But I'm not sure uh, that we know the difference. Christoph sees uh, cortex as uniquely involved in carrying content. That's not entirely clear uh, at this point. It's not an unreasonable hypothesis, uh, but it's not entirely clear. But what's relevant for the issue of organoids is that while you may have this big cortical sheet, do you in fact have 
the structures that are necessary to, as Christoph would say, enable consciousness. For example, do you have anything that corresponds to those structures in the brainstem, such as the raphe and the locus ceruleus, that we know are critical for consciousness in all mammals and birds? Is there anything like that? If not, maybe what you've got is something that is responding, but because the enabling conditions don't obtain, you don't have anything like consciousness. The other thing that we know that's kind of interesting about mammalian consciousness is that the thalamus is really, really important. And that's part of the reason why I'm not sure I want to say it's just an enabling structure or whether it's much more than that. So as you know, of course, the thalamus is composed of many substructures. But there are two bits that uh, we think play a really important role in being aware. One is the reticular nucleus of the thalamus, which is really kind of like the rind of an orange on the outside. That's critical. Everything that goes through the thalamus or from cortex back into the thalamus has to go through the reticular nucleus. The other structure that we know is really important, and we know this from human studies and some animal studies, is what used to be called the intralaminar nuclei of the thalamus. It kind of runs through the thalamus, but often now gets called uh, the central thalamus. And correct me if I'm wrong, but when I, the, the little that I know about the details of organoids suggests to me that there is nothing comparable to um, the thalamus, which suggests to me that if you do a zip and zap, <laughs> on your big cortical bedspread, um, that it's not going to tell you anything very much because you don't have the enabling conditions. Now, is that a problem scientifically? Well, it may turn out it's not. And my guess is, given the kind of data you have so far about what these organoids can and can't do, it may be a blessing that you don't have the enabling conditions because then you don't have the ethical dilemma. You can say, yeah, we got all this cortical stuff, but it's kind of like you know, having a scab. I mean, there's no feeling there. There's no, yes, there is responsivity, but of course, again, as Christoph pointed out, we can have all kinds of responses uh, in the nervous system, in the enteric system, as well as elsewhere, without our being aware of those things. So it could turn out um, that if those uh, enabling structures are not there, that that's kind of a blessing in disguise. It might mean then that you can get most of what you really want having to do with disorders during development, as in the Zika virus case, disorders during development that show that there is improper lamination location of, of neurons, for example, in the case of autism, or other things. You can get most of what is going to be scientifically and medically valuable without having the problem uh, of, of consciousness um, in a dish. And that's kind of how it looks to me, actually, uh, at this point. 
But suffice it to say, of course, that there's so much that we don't understand about the nature of the mechanisms for consciousness. Um, and that's true in, in, in mammals and in birds. But there are, of course, people who think that fruit flies are, are conscious and other things are conscious. I'm, I'm a little bit flat-footed on these questions. My own feeling is that to the degree that another animal shares, the basic structures that we know in the case of the human are critical for consciousness, cortex, thalamus, and brainstem structures. Uh, to that degree, it's a reasonable inference to say that the animal probably has experiences comparable to some degree to mine. So I think that's going to be true of dogs and mice and elephants and orca and so forth. But when you ask me about a snail, you know, it doesn't have cortex, it doesn't have brainstem, it doesn't have a thalamus. I mean, how would I know? So it's possible as, as some sort of uh, panpsychists want to say that everything is conscious uh, to some degree, even my toenails, even my toenail clippings. Um, it kind of flies in the face of common sense at this stage. So that's the first part of what I wanted to say. And um, the other part raises a kind of sideways question about ethics. And the sideways question about ethics here goes like this. That, well, I'll, I'll tell you a brief anecdote. So yesterday, both the Irish Times and the London Times ran articles about the erosion of trust in science. And they're very worrisome. Um, they were talking about rather different things. They were certainly not talking about organoids. Um, mostly they were talking about drugs, but also about nutritional questions and, uh, and other things. But the worry was that of all of the things, all of the places in our institutional life, our community life, where we do not want to see erosion, it's in the trust of science because that means the erosion of common sense as well. So what did they think the problem was? Why is this happening? Well, of course, there are many factors, but one that both of these rather independent articles mentioned was that we have to be super, super careful in our institutions that the people writing the press releases don't hype it out of all recognition, that they don't hype it in such a way that the story gets way overblown and that people pick it up and think, have ideas about the story that are totally implausible. And so I, I appreciated your point that we really ought not to call these organoids mini-brains. And yet people do, and they will continue to do that. So, well, you know, is that really a problem? Yeah, yeah, they are kind of mini-brains. But I think it is a problem. It's a problem because, if I may put it in a slightly exaggerated form myself, there are lots and lots of people out there who are looking for places to bank their moral outrage. 
and lots of them are really angry about a lot of things, and those highfalutin scientists who have the moral arrogance to play God are a favorite target. And you do not want to be that target. Especially if they manage to get the ear of a sympathetic senator or a sympathetic congressman or a sympathetic pastor or a sympathetic philosopher come to that. Uh, then, then you can have real trouble and it can cause um, the undermining of what could be absolutely stunning and really important science that will, as, as Larry suggest great science goes to great medicine. I don't know how best to be careful about this other than in, in your own um, talks and in your own papers and so forth, you are as frank and honest and straightforward as you can possibly be. And I think downplaying the similarity between an actual baby brain and, uh, uh, and an organoid is probably a good thing. If I may go back to take an example to the EEG. It is very cool to see that uh, if you, uh, if you re um, record activity from the organoids, you see the, in, in what is kind of an organoid EEG, you see this pattern. But these are, EEG is measuring not spikes, but local field potentials. Do these things spike at all? Has anybody ever recorded a spike? Well, it might be in a way, again, uh, a mercy if they haven't. <laughs> because you can say, look, these are not even responding the way normal neurons respond. They don't spike. These are local field potentials. Well, what are local field potentials? Well, by and large, what they are are the result of dendritic activity, not spike uh, down a neuron. So maybe when the press comes and the press releases are written up by UCSD or whoever, maybe what we need to do is be super careful and describe the differences so that you don't have somebody who, out of genuine concern, thinks, oh my God, there are the scientists playing God again. Making brains, can you imagine, uh, in the lab. So, so that's the sideways moral concern that I have. I don't see any moral concern about even making you know, pizza-sized cortical sheets, because I don't see that the enabling structures are there. Um, and the more we can find out about de human development in this way, we, the better the chance we have of addressing these really, really difficult issues about autism, schizophrenia, dementia, uh, and other psychiatric conditions. And it's been a long, long time when we've hoped to make progress in that, and it would be wonderful if we were able to do so. So that's really all I have to say on, on that. Thanks. So um, you understand the position that you're taking, which is essentially if Allison grows his 
four millimeter ones up to the pizza size, that there wouldn't be any particular ethical concern because they're lacking the structures that enable what we call consciousness. But how about if somehow he figures out how to create these structures that enable consciousness, yeah. uh, then what would you propose that we do? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. And my feeling is I'll answer that when we get there. I mean, I, I don't want to sound like a dope here, but, um, you know, in, in, when I was a young philosopher about 100 years ago, um, we spent a lot of time trying to solve problems that were what-ifs that never materialized. And I thought, you know, I could have been playing tennis all that time. <laughs> and I, you know, so... Francis, again, if I may invoke, Francis used to say, you know, you really can only make meaningful predictions in science about to a time horizon about five years out, or if you really have a strong science, maybe 10 years. After that, it's just speculation. And, you know, I don't... Um, I think speculation can be fun and interesting, but the problem with considering an ethical issue where it's so totally unconstrained, I think that it's reasonable to say, I don't know what I'd do. Wait, you know, let me wait and see. And when I know more of the constraints, more of the details, then I can maybe grapple with that problem in a meaningful way. So the, uh, that, that's kind of a, a, a naughty answer, I guess. It's not a very satisfying answer because I don't know what I'd say. It depends. I mean, as Christoph said, it would depend on whether they're suffering or not. Maybe they're totally happy. Maybe this is the way to be, right? Just, you know, hang out in a dish. Out in a dish. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know what I'd say. On the moral question, um, my friend's son, 19, was kidnapped and was able to escape from underground organ harvesting farm in Nepal. So when we think of what is happening with Azidis or Uyghur, we can see yeah. how big the industry is going on actually using, taking organs from living human beings. And I thank you, scientists, for actually working towards actually producing, if possibly, tomorrow uh, these, these organs so that this type of brutality will not continue among the humans. Wow. Well, that's a perfectly horrifying story. Uh, well, I guess uh, growing, growing kidneys in a dish, of course, is not like harvesting kidneys from a human. So, so those would be very very different, very different issues. But, uh, but, of course, what you're pointing to is something that I certainly resonate with, and that is that when these new technologies come along, where we're able to do things that are, was not possible in our grandparents' time, for example, um, then, then we do have to sort of come together and figure out what, what the right thing to do is. My only point with regard to brain organoids is I don't see 
that there is a moral issue with regard to these uh, little organoids that Allison is growing. Um, I wouldn't, by the way, call them brain farms. I think I'd call them uh, something really nice, like therapeutic farms or something. I don't know. I'm not, you know, that's not my, <laughs> I'm not a PR person. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, yeah, it's going to bring out the worst of, of people's fears. I mean, people are right to be afraid of various things, but, uh, yeah, I would not go anywhere near that, that expression, brain farm. Sorry, that's just a bit of motherly advice. <laughs> the um, concept of, of consciousness... Uh, and we talk about the reliance upon enabling structures. Is this because our whole concept is based on homo sapien consciousness? Is there even a way to step back even further and talk about consciousness on an animal, you know, mineral, vegetable kind of level? I don't think so. I think that you start with what you know, and the only place where we know that we have consciousness is in the case of humans. And that's why my preference would be to say that uh, once we have some understanding, at least of the anatomical elements that are crucial, that we limit what we say has consciousness to, to animals that have those structures. I mean, it's possible that uh, as we come to understand more about the, the mechanisms even in, in, um, in, all, in mammals, that we will see that there are analogs in lizards or fish. And uh, that will be helpful. But I think at the moment, we have to just say, we don't know. Um, it, I mean, it seems highly unlikely to me that, say, C. elegans, where the females have 302 neurons and the males have 325. Well, is that? Anyway, uh, they just need more. Um, <laughs> um, it seems highly unlikely that C. elegans is, is conscious, partly because we know quite a bit about what all those neurons do, and they've got a lot to do. Um, and I don't think there's anything anything left. But uh, we will, I think, as we understand more about the human brain and solve some of the really big outstanding problems about the nature of information processing in, in the human brain, we will understand more about the role of consciousness and what, con what really are the mechanisms of consciousness, and that will help us understand its evolutionary basis, which may then help us understand what to say uh, about snails. Um, there are people who will not swat a mosquito that's drawing blood from them. I don't actually have a problem doing that. I just went. Um, but uh, I, I, I understand that some people don't want to do that. So there are just differences in people's intuitions on this. And if all you've got to go on are intuitions and the data aren't there, then, you know, there's not much you can do. The data will come, I think. I have a question. Um, one of my concerns about explaining 
um, yeah. the differences or emphasizing the differences between, say, organoids and uh, a baby is that one of the arguments we use for pursuing this line of research is how right. there'll be better models for things that we want to test. So how do you reconcile those things? Yeah, no, I know I, I was thinking about this earlier, is that, you know, the, the more you say these are really like baby brains, then, you know, the more justifiable at least in the eyes of many people, more justifiable your claims about how it's going to have a medical uh, significance. And then to the degree that you say they're different. So, but, but in a way, um, there must be a middle ground where you can say that it doesn't look like they're conscious and it doesn't look like they sp- the neurons are actually spiking, although for all I know, maybe they are. Um, but that, that the dissimilarities do not affect the inference to the nature of developmental disorders. I mean, there, there's got to be a good way of saying that so that you both can you know, not get into ethical hot water in a needless way, but you can still make the research clean. But you're absolutely right about that. Well taken. Yeah. Oh, thanks, Pat. You've, you've made a good case that we can go home now. Um, on the other hand, um, I think there's a number of things that might be worth looking at more. So you've cautioned Allison about the language he uses um, because of the way it might be perceived by the public. Um, but to what extent should we be, and what point should we be saying um, we are ready to do something like the um, Asilomar Conference on Recombinant DNA? I, you were describing today as that time at first, but now you're saying maybe we shouldn't be worrying yet. Uh, we should wait until there is a problem. So how would we know we've gotten to a problem that requires something more thoughtful on what we're dealing with? Yeah, um, no, that's a, a, that's a very fair question. Um, first of all, what I think I wanted to say about the press releases and so forth is that you be very frank, you be completely honest and you don't let them run away uh, with the impression that, that they can sell millions of papers because you just said you were making a brain in a vat. Um, so that's, that's the concern that I have. I mean, Carl Zimmer is really good as a science writer, and it was interesting to me that he, he raised that issue in the New York Times piece. Well, it's a good thing to raise it, but it's also important that you can say that these things are really very, very different, um, at least at this stage. I mean, who knows what's going to happen in five years, but at this stage, they're different in the sense they don't have these enabling structures. They don't have a thalamus. They don't have brainstem structures. They do have growth factors. Does that do it? Probably not. That probably isn't doesn't enable consciousness in the way that the intralaminar nuclei of the thalamus probably does. Um, so that's the one ethical issue that I wanted to raise. I personally don't see others here. 
um, except perhaps the, the wider, wider issue of the communication between scientists and the wider public. And, and, and I think, but that's not something I'm a specialist about, and, and I think everybody's aware of that issue anyway. Yeah, Larry. So I guess I'm wondering whether the notion of enabling structures, whether the notion of enabling structures is consistent with the injury literature, and in particular the literature that's involving on severely disabled people where there's an argument that MRI has detected signs of consciousness. Do we know anything from those that validates the notion of, a, of enabling structures? Yeah, that's a really good question. So the question has to do with what about these enabling structures actually anyway? Um, and, and what do, does the, the lesional literature from neurology tell us? And there I think um, the answer is that with someone, for example, who's lost the capacity to see visual motion, she sees many other things. So she still has lots of visual experience, and there's nothing wrong with many of her other uh, sensory experiences. I mean, she she has a normal sense of touch. She she she, uh, she lost a visual structure as a result of anoxia, and and it was believed that the 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 part of V one V two that was damaged was particularly vulnerable under these conditions. So she's got lots and lots of experience. Um, sensory and otherwise. So that's, that's thing one. And then there's the, the thing about the minimally conscious people. Um, I guess, I mean, in, in some cases, they may have intralaminar damage. Um, and, but probably not brainstem damage. But because we know they have sleep-wake cycles. And uh, so that Terry Schiavo, for example, and in general, people who are diagnosed as in a persistent vegetative state have sleep-wake cycles. Um, so whereas, of course, we do know that people who have big uh, brainstem lesions, um, they're done. Yeah, Christoph. Seems to me that you're trying to ask scientists to have have a cake and eat it too. Well, I think that's nice if you can do it. Yeah, but it's inherently conflicting. I mean, here, you know, we we are <laughs> we are being told we have to communicate our science to the public. Yeah. And we have to communicate to NIH. We love, and our press department loves when we get a story by Carl Zimmer in the New York Times. I New York know. Times wants to communicate it. NIH wants to communicate to show that it's relevant. And so we want to show, well, what we're doing is very close to the real human thing because, you know, we... But, but, but then, on the yeah. other hand, we say, well, but it's not so close that you have to worry. And that seems to be... I think it's challenge. a fine line. And I think... Uh, you just have to do the best you can so that you don't hype. Uh, I'm not saying that that has occurred in this instance, but there are a number of places in neuroscience uh, where this has occurred, and really quite egregiously so. In fact, it motivated somebody to write, uh, to, to start a blog called 
uh, says just in mice, meaning that uh, <laughs> that many of these stories don't tell you until the very end, if at all, that the experiment was just done in mice and that it may or may not uh, hold or translate into what we know about humans. So, no, I mean, I, I don't think there is a way of having your cake and eating it too. I think what you have to do is just be mindful of the fact that you have to be really, really honest and don't hype, don't hype your results. Um, I mean, there, you know, there was this famous case of the guy who claimed that he had made the the uh, the lame walk by using sort of electrical stimulators on the spinal cord, and it was just all kind of a hookup, and and yet people believed it, and it made all kinds of people out in the world think. Yes, I need that. I can walk again if I have that guy fix me. And it was just not true. Yeah, sorry. So when I tell my friends about this organized research, they freak out because, well, they have like a, ver- a variety of like very strong re- reactions because we're growing human brain tissues, right? Yes, of course. But we routinely experiment on you know rats and like even higher order animals and people really don't bat an eye and you just said that like we know the only conscious agents are humans and i don't think that's true because oh no 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 i if i i I, we start with humans because we know that they are but we make a very reasonable inference to all mammals but we don't even know if all humans are conscious, right? Like, well, we know we are conscious. And I don't want to, like, delve into this soliloquy, but, like, that's the only thing that we know. And I'm just curious, like, why do you think there's something so special about humanness here? Oh, I don't. I don't think there is something special about humanness, save the numbers, the number of neurons. So 86 billion in, in uh, humans is a lot bigger than in a, in a chimpanzee or a monkey, although, as Christoph has pointed out, uh, grave whales have even more, although most of it's in the cerebellum, if I may say. But, um, no, I mean, I, I don't... I think that, that uh, one of the great advances in science over the last 20 years has been the work that has been done by the ethologists, both those who study animals in captivity and those who study them in the wild, and showing us the complexity of their problem solving, the complexity of their social life and their moral life. And uh, I have no, not the slightest hesitation in thinking that mammals in general um, are are conscious, uh, and that's partly on the basis of their behavior, but also because of the nature of the similarity of brain structures. I mean, a mouse doesn't have any brain structures that I don't have. I just have more neurons and a few more neuron types, and they're packed together a little more densely. Um, so, yeah, I'm with you on that one. Yeah. Hi, thanks. Uh, this is a, I think, a follow-up in some sense to Christoph's question. So yeah. it's an invitation to say more about the challenge of effective science communication given the background vexed nature of the, the kind of subject matter. Uh, and so, and partly, 
I guess I worry that uh, when there are incentives to hype research, it's not going to be enough for us to just say, be honest and be nuanced. Um, Because uh, any more than, than asking people to be honest and nuanced when there are massive incentives, for portraying research uh, and its implications in ways that are splashy, that get approval of, yeah, I know. of press and the, and the folks funding the research and so on. So uh, I take it that's the real, that, I mean, in some sense, that's where the real challenge is. I, yeah. I mean, I suspect that, you're, uh, that most scientists, most philosophers, most laypersons are going to think, yeah, I completely agree that, that, that science, scientists should be honest about their research and they should be nuanced about their research. And then there's a question about, so how do you promulgate that? Nobody's <laughs> going to disagree with the thing that you were telling us to do. But then the real question is, so how does that get balanced against these incentivizations and institutional pressures and are, yeah. other than just exhorting people to do the right thing? And, I and don't so, know. And Well, so so are you averse to, for example changing institutional structures such that we incentivize different kinds of things or what would that look like or is the or is the thought that the best we can do is just ask people to be honest and nuanced when talking to science writers and hope that science writers will make good on it and and that nobody will have incentives to gloss things otherwise so can you tell us more I don't really have an answer. I mean, it is a very, very interesting question, but it's a very complicated question because, as you pointed out, it has a lot to do with the grant structure and the people who are going to be uh, evaluating your grant are sensitive to the things that they read in the New York Times or wherever. And so I understand that there is an enormous incentive. At the same time... I think um, that ultimately it's going to hurt you if you hype it because there's this general worry about the, the loss of trust in science, that oh, you know, scientists will say all kinds of stuff and it isn't true. Um, and, I mean, the Irish Times and the London Times are, you know, it's, it's, these aren't tabloids. So... So it is a concern, and it's a very complicated question, and I don't really have very much to say. I wish I could say more. And I've sort of blathered on in hopes that more would be said, but no, I I really... Yeah, Larry. So I'm just going to point out that scientists have the same problem when they write scientific papers. Right. The tendency of all of us, or in some cases, is to... You know, overemphasize what we think is important, and we're sometimes accused of hyping our data and all the rest. Yeah. Community standards do a pretty good job, not a perfect job, of they do. moderating, you know, the the incentives to overdo it. Yeah. So that's that's one point. The other point is I want to do a redirect here. So we, we have an actual science journalist, sorry Brad. Oh. <laughs> uh, sitting here in the audience. And so the question for Brad is you know, how do you navigate guys like me overhyping our work? Don't you get in, you sometimes get independent opinions, don't you? Well, of course, I try right. to talk to other yeah. scientists. Yeah, I, uh, when it's a question, something that's really kind of complicated, I will often find another scientist who has got expertise in the field. I look up their papers, see if they've got some credentials, has have produced some fairly significant work and say, what do you think about this? 
And sometimes there are services like ProfNet, which will help you hook up mm-hmm. with scientists, help you out on a, on a deadline. But I often just prefer to look for similar papers using the various journals to say, is this in the area? And then, of course, can I reach them on deadline? Yeah, right. So I'll, so I'll point out that Brad actually writes fairly measured he does. articles. He does. He does. He does. No, no, I read them. Yep. That's a good method is yep. what I'm hearing. Yep, yep. Unfortunately, we're out of time. 